Now that we've got a technology that actually is not only immutable, but it's better in terms of every other category for money, it's a true innovation in the, you know, the, the um, strongest sense of the word. We can prioritize that as something that we should value as part of money now. And we can say, okay, we don't even need this trade-off anymore. We've literally just innovated that away. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get that $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB. And you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we've got Ledger the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Right, Mr. Yates. Cheers. Cheers. We won't tell anyone what time it is. 
Right, thanks for coming in, man. <sighs> thanks for having me, man. No, it was an easy choice. Uh, I like your book. Yeah? Want to get into it? Sweet. Want to talk about the seventh property? Yep. Um, but let's do some background stuff. Like, mm. take me on the journey to writing a book. Okay. What took you there? Okay, so um, now you want to start like background, like, because it's, it's kind of a long story. Let's go. We've all got right. time. We've got, right. we got a drink. All right. So I'll start this, start this in freshman year of college. Um, How do you know? 28. You're a fucking baby. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of at that age, though, where like everybody's starting to get a little bit older now, though. Like 20, 27, 28, all my friends are starting to get married. So I got to grow up. I'm kind of the immature one. You wait till you hit 43 and everything stops working. <laughs> right, <yeah>. Bullshit. <laughs> so, yeah. Freshman year of college, I was, um, so I went to school, I was studying finance and economics. And back then I was like very, uh, I was very structured and I was thinking like, um, you know, I, you know, I was like career path. I want to work in, uh, you know, private equity. And I had this goal that I set up and I was, uh, you know, set up this plan, very structured to get to that point. And, um, you know, all the while I graduated college, um, I went to work for a management consulting firm. What, called, you, what do you major in? Finance and economics. Okay. Um, and that was just like, you know, I was a younger kid and I took like personality tests and I was like, okay, I want to go into this field. And, uh, I was always interested in economics. So that was kind of like a hobby of mine. Um, the first book I feel like I read was capitalism and freedom by Milton Friedman. I was like my senior year of high school that got me pretty hooked on the libertarian ideology. And, um, you know, I don't like to put myself into like groups necessarily, like there's problems with libertarianism and it's not like a fully, um, you know, fully worked out theory, but there's a lot of stuff that. I gravitate towards. Yeah. We can get into that. Yeah, we talked, yeah, we, we sure. had uh, Stefan Nevera in here yesterday. Not Stefan Nevera, what a fucking idiot. Yeah. Uh, we had Vijay Boyaparty in yesterday. It was because we were discussing Stefan Nevera, uh, but we got into libertarianism yep. uh, yesterday. Yep. So we can cover that. I'd be interested to talk to you about Okay, that. cool. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Um, so, I, you know, I always saw economics as kind of like a hobby and uh, finance was like a good tool to be able to operate in the business world. And, you know, when I started going down that journey, um, I graduated college and I was like, okay, I need to get the best job I can so that I can get the skills I need to work for like a private equity firm. And I was working for this company, FTI Consulting. So we did corporate restructuring, which is like, so when companies are going through challenges or they're gonna go into bankruptcy or, you know, somewhere in between, we were advisors that would get brought in to help either assist them or bring them through a bankruptcy. And that's like, you take control of the company and you like turn around the operations or you negotiate with their creditors for them and a bunch of different things and just kind of help them with like whatever shit show they're going through. And I thought that was a good way for like me to cut my teeth and get into the financial field, see where shit gets really bad. And what was interesting that, um, you know, I didn't really think about, but in hindsight, that gave me a lot of exposure to all of this malinvestment that exists within the economy. And after a while, I was just, you know, after a few years, I was amazed at how many companies can actually still keep staying alive for the periods they do just by like rolling over their debt. And a lot of these companies should probably just close up shop and there's not a lot of value being created. So yeah, I was, uh, learning a lot about that. And when I moved to this private equity fund, um, I was dealing with similar type of company. So like um, there's this private equity fund out here, actually, it's called Platinum Equity. And they specialize in buying corporate carve outs, which is just like when a larger enterprise wants to remove a division of it, 
you need a buyer who specializes in doing that because it can get really nasty. Because when you take like a piece of the pie away, it doesn't have a back office with it. The accounting gets really nasty. You need people who specialize in doing that. And that's what this guy's name is Thomas Gores and he owns the Detroit Pistons and he kind of created that idea. So my bosses were his lieutenants and they spun off and did a fund out in Denver. And I was working there for about a year and a half. And, um, you know, after, after being there, it was kind of like, I, you know, I love the experience I was getting and it gave me a lot of valuable skills, but it was, um, you know, I wasn't as passionate about the stuff as I thought it would be. And it was kind of like, you know, you're like a kid and you're trying to come up with like a plan for what you're going to do. And you think like, okay, well, these things seem really interesting. And then you kind of get there. And I was a bit like disillusions, probably not the right word, but you know, I was like, okay, this, this ain't it. What is it? Bored? Yeah. Not even bored, man. It's just like, you're like, you know, it's like, okay, so I was like grinding on projects for like six months and you're working like 80 hour weeks and like, um, unfulfilled. Yeah. 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 A little bit maybe, yeah. um, you, you know, I'm like gaining weight, um, not socializing, losing friends. Cause I just don't see people as much anymore. And I'm like working on stuff. And it's kind of like, if you're going to work that hard on something, you really got to care about it. And, um, and after a while I was kind of like, okay, so like, is this it? And like, you know, my future kind of started to get definable features. So I was like, okay, you know, five more years, I get to this position, you know, eight more years. And, you know, maybe at that point I'll be 40 pounds heavier. And, you know, I don't know, I'll probably have a nice car, but I'll probably be divorced, like things like that. You've and, like, literally just described my life. <laughs> Motherfucker. Oh man, I kind of just roasted you, you didn't just I? Literally oh shit. Me. Divorced. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking pounds. about specifically for career related things. <laughs> But <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, you, uh, you're right. No, that, that's yeah. what happened. You know. Yeah. Okay. It, and yeah. it becomes unfulfilling. You, you yeah. You realize like, uh, ten years goes by, fifteen years goes mm -hmm. by, and you're like, what the fuck have I actually done here? Like, right. What did I do? What did I get out of this? Mm -hmm. Was I happy? It's uh, they're all fair points. Right. Right. Yeah. And like, I I started to kind of see that a bit, and I was like all right, well, do I want to do that? And at this time I was like, I was almost 26. And, uh, and I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to take a jump, like now's a good time. And, um, you know, cause I could still go back to my career path. I could still recover. I'm still young to like take that kind of risk. You can't really do this as easily in your thirties unless it's like much more structured and less risky. So that was when I started getting the gears turned on. And then I was like, okay, well, what do I want to do? And, um, and it was, it was a weird process. It kind of just like hit me all of a sudden, but I was like, okay, well, I, you know, I was spending a lot of my free time just reading about Bitcoin and uh, all, all going back to like the start of my Bitcoin journey, that was in 2017 when I was working for my first company. And I had this buddy who was my cube man named Avi and he would just like bring up Bitcoin all the time. And he was like more like tech focused, kind of nerdier guy. And I was just like, you know, the finance background, like, oh, it's, a, you know, it's a speculative investment. I can't really get behind that. Um, I don't know how to measure its value. That's not going to game. It might, it might be worth a lot one day. I just don't know. Okay. And he just kind of kept harping it on me. And then I was like, all right, like I'll read into this thing one day, like just cause I love you, buddy. And, um, and I started reading into it. And then once the freedom aspects of it started to hit with me, um, that's when I was like, oh, this is a solution to a lot of the issues of central banking. And once that hit me, I got a lot more interested. 
And I started to reach, you know, I, was, I started off, you, you research Bitcoin and then you immediately are like, okay, well, what does Ethereum do? And what do all the other ones do? And I spent probably a lot of 2017 just like looking into that kind of stuff. And you get a lot more confused because you start getting hung up on all these different distinctions between like, you know, the different consensus algorithms and like learning about all this. And you kind of realize there's like this huge spider web of knowledge out there that like people are just getting led into in different directions. And there wasn't like a ton of like really core information that people should be focused on because there isn't like a curriculum that exists for this industry yet. Um, so I don't know if I'd call it all wasted time, but probably a lot less like productive forms of research back then. And um, I remember back then too, like at one point I was kind of thinking like, what if I jumped into this industry? And I was like, ah, that's a crazy thing. But <laughs> there's like all these crazy people on Twitter yelling at each other. And, um, but it was interesting to me. And then when I was, you know, fast forward two more years, one of the private equity firm again, I'm kind of thinking like, what do I want to do? And I was like, you could think about doing something in Bitcoin. And like, there was, there was the Bitcoin side of things. There was the um, general like career side of things. Like when you work in a private equity, like I was like an analyst. So like I ran numbers, we had meetings, we negotiated, we did due diligence where we found out all the details we could about companies. And, um, and it, it, it's good work in terms of like, you know, being an analytical person, but there's no like media aspect to it. And when I'd be on Bitcoin Twitter and there's all these people like saying their opinions with followings and talking about what they think is wrong in the world, what's right in the world, that was always something that was really appealing to me. Mm -hmm. And I just thought like being in these professional environments nonstop is just so cringe. Like I just like couldn't deal with that all the time. And I was like, can't we just like kick it for a little bit sometimes, guys? Did you have to wear a suit? Ooh, we didn't have to wear suits, which was nice. The only people who wear suits nowadays are like lawyers. And had you dismissed or the other altcoins at this point? No, no, and I, I, it took me a while to like dismiss them. Um, it was, it was, it was more like, um, and I'm, I'm still not at a point where I think like there is a 100% failure rate. I wouldn't qualify myself as like a pure Bitcoin. I, I don't know what any of these names mean really, um, mm -hmm. but like I wouldn't qualify myself as like a pure Bitcoin maximalist. I'm totally focused on Bitcoin. I think that from risk to reward to value that's expected, you know, everything else pales in comparison. But I think that the idea that all of this will fail and there will be 100% one form of money at like the far extreme is uh, debatable at this point. And I'm not certain of that. Yeah, but I, think I, I think I agree. Yeah. Um, I don't care about any of the other. Right, right. I don't care about yeah. Ethernet. I don't care about Solano. I right. care about Bitcoin. That's, exactly. That's my focus. Exactly. And like, it's just like when you think about the market size that we're competing for, <laughs> what we're competing for and... Um, you know, in the market size of everything else that's competing. And uh, when you when you get that, like, when you get that core understanding of how this industry is ultimately gonna build out and you say like, okay, well, it needs to settle on the firmest foundation. We're talking about a massive, massive question here. We're talking about the foundation for an entire new financial structure in money, which is the largest market in the world. So we're gonna do that right. We're gonna do that on firm ground and the market's gonna to gravitate towards that one way or another. Um, and when you think about it from that perspective, it's like, okay, well, a lot of this bullshit floating around is just, it's a bit more laughable. And um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, why would you focus on anything else? And I, But is there potential for things that ultimately settle in Bitcoin? And will that be centralized companies? Will that be, you know, decentralized in name only companies? Will that be some sort of other layer that's decentralized? You know, that's what Lightning is, is it's, uh, you know, it's another layer. It's kind of 
a second form of money. I mean, it's so closely tied to Bitcoin that you can argue it's basically the same thing, but the risk, uh, the risk and trust nature of it's different. So I yeah. qualify it differently. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so it's like there are other forms of money that are already being existing, uh, um, created to like enable this ecosystem. Well, I think there will always be people trying to compete with Bitcoin because yeah. they don't like some of the tech. They think they can do more with other platforms or the incentive model exists to create something else because of the reward mechanism. Yeah. Um, but I, I think on a long enough time frame, they always lose to Bitcoin. Yeah. Because it's not so much about utility. It's not so right. much about, it's like you said, it's more about the firm groundings of what Bitcoin is. And right. if you want a base currency for the world. Yep. Bitcoin is really the best out there. So I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, um, like, in my book, I kind of break, when I think about that problem, I do that in, like, the first chapter. But I, I, I think, like, the three, and, you know, I don't know if this is completely exhaustive, but this is just kind of where I got to. I think, like, the three things that ultimately constrain whether or not there will be, like, one form of money is, um, you know, sovereign coercion. So the ability for governments to control things, and that's why we have so many different currencies today. Um, information opacity, so the amount of how transparent information is today versus how it used to be. Like if you go back in time, a lot of the reasons people were using different forms of money was just because they're in different for different geographies, nobody knew who each other were, and they're just using different money that was kind of native to wherever they were. Um, but now that we have the internet, information opacity has been largely reduced. It's not perfectly reduced. Not everybody's on the internet. And, you know, even governments can still control telecommunications. So it's not like that's going to be perfect, but it's been largely reduced. And then, you know, like monetary utility trade-offs. And that'll be the big thing is whether or not there is going to emerge at some point in the future, some sort of major um, utility trade-off between Bitcoin and something else in some like edge market, I would say. And it's possible. I mean, I don't know. But if, in any event, that'll probably be like maybe best case scenario, 5% of the market. So why, why would you care that much about that? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So you went, fuck yeah, I'm going to go and write a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll hop back on the story. Um, I, uh, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go write a book for this industry. I was like, um, I came to the conclusion, I was like, dude, you read about this all the time. It's totally, it's what you care about. It's what you're interested in. It's like fun to you. It's your hobby. Um, may, maybe you could do something this direction. And then I had to like kind of put together in my head, like, okay, well, from a career perspective, it's like, I want to get involved in this media side of things. Like, I enjoy that. I'm good at that. Um, that's one thing that like can, you know, there's not a lot of people that are like highly analytical I met in my past career who are also like really good communicators. There's oftentimes I'd see a trade-off with that. Um, and I was like, okay, well, if I can communicate stuff well and I love like educating people on stuff, then there's a route I want to go in that as well. So like, that's kind of the framework I had in my head. And I, and I wanted to, you know, I just wanted to be more open and like transparent about things and uh, tell a story to the world. And um, you felt like you could carve a space within the Bitcoin space as that guy. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I, I, was, I didn't even know what it was yet, though. I was yeah. just like trying to think like first principles, like here are the things I'm interested in. And, you know, I could probably figure something out. And so I kind of put together a plan where I was like, okay, I, I could probably go for like, you know, two to three years runway and figure something out because I just didn't have a lot of time to like, you know, work after hours at my prior job. So I quit my job and decided I'm just going to like jump full time into this industry. And the first thing I did was 
take like three months off and reconnect with a bunch of my old buddies and had, you know, like best summer of my life. It was good for the soul. And, um, and then I started getting to work and, um, I put together like a curriculum for myself and it was like, that was a whole process in and of itself. Cause it's like, what books do I read? Well, you kind of find this stuff out from like Twitter, which you have to get like first, you know, you hop in Bitcoin Twitter, you see Peter McCormack, you see like Pompliano, you like follow them for a bit and then you see other people after that and then you follow them for a bit and eventually you have to see, okay, I agree with these people, I disagree with these people. And then that's like a, at least a multi-month process of even like figuring out where all the like deeper information lies. So it's kind of like this whole rabbit hole you have to go down to to even acquire the right information. And now that's a lot better than back then, but, um, but that was a whole process and I put together this curriculum for myself and, you know, I got deep into just like, you know, money, history, banking. Um, I had to like teach myself, like I didn't know anything about computers really before going into this. Like I had some knowledge, we were looking to buy a semiconductor company one time and I learned a bit from that, but like didn't know that much. I had to teach myself Python to do like Jimmy Song's programming Bitcoin book, um, which I wanted to get to because like, when in my job, it's like, if I want to understand a company, then I need to model out all the details of it. And it was kind of like that with Bitcoin. It's like, if I want to understand how it works and I need to like actually model out how it actually works. You went deep. Well, yeah. What sucks about that though, is like, after I wrote the book, um, I couldn't, uh, I haven't used a lot of that technical knowledge cause I'm not like a developer. So like it stinks because it's amazing how much knowledge that you can actually lose if you're not just like maintaining it all the time. Cause like, I've kind of like de facto been, you know, like this Bitcoin economics person on Twitter a bit. So I talk about that a lot and I don't talk as much about like technical aspects of Bitcoin. So I haven't been just like, you know, iterating over that knowledge very much. So I kind of lost it a bit, but I, that book was awesome. Well, what, did, what did you learn from that book? In, you know, going down that rabbit hole of learning to program Python, what, what understanding did, did that give you of Bitcoin that I wouldn't have because I've not done that? So it's just like, uh, it, uh, it at a high level, I mean, not as much, but like, you see how actual like, um, you know, keys are generated and you see how like, you know, you get like a bit of an understanding of like elliptic curve cryptography. And, um, and you'd be like, okay, so we use random numbers to generate keys and that it's an important piece that that form of randomness needs to be really good and certain wallets can and cannot have good forms of randomness. And I'm assuming that most wallets nowadays are all good with how they actually do that. I don't know. But like you're aware of more granular risks kind of like that. And then like, you know, like, oh, well, we all have this, you know, common generator point that's used across all of Bitcoin. And if you take that random number and you multiply it across the standard point that everybody uses to generate wallets, um, the SECP like 2K6 or whatever it is, um, elliptic curve, then that's how we ultimately generate a Bitcoin address. And through that, you can be like, okay, well, so if you take that's effectively taking A, multiplying it by B and equals C. And what I learned was like, okay, well, if you take A times B, then it's easy to calculate C. But what if you only had B and C and you didn't have A and you wanted to figure out A? You could just divide C by B, right? Based on normal algebra, but no, like Bitcoin uses um, finite field math or uh, the SECP elliptic curve cryptography uses finite field math. And that's a very different form of math. And because of that, um, the way it's described, which is um, it's analogous, it's not perfect, um, but it's like a clock, like operations are done similar to how you do math when you're calculating on a clock. So like you have something called an order. And when you have like on a clock, your order would be 12, the maximum number of the clock. And anytime you do a calculation and it exceeds that maximum number, 
then your answer is the remainder. So if I were to say it's one o'clock today and I'm gonna add um, 13 hours to that, then my answer is two o'clock. So it's the remainder, it's not 13 all the way around. It's just a, simply the amount that's greater than 12 after that. So like for that reason, um, we can use these forms of uh, math to create, and if you use prime numbers and really, really large numbers as the order, then this is more just about cryptography, um, but it's very hard for computers to run division problems when we use that type of math and we use very large numbers because they can only solve these forms of division through iterative guesses, which means that requires computing power to do. And if you have big enough numbers, which um, like Bitcoin's, um, the order of the um, generator point for Bitcoin, I think is like, um, 10 to the 77th and like there's like 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. Um, so it's like, it's just like incomprehensibly large number. Uh -huh. So because of that, it would take, uh, and this is like a quote from Jimmy Song, um, it would take a trillion computers calculating, doing a trillion calculations per second, a trillion years to find an answer to that division problem for any given Bitcoin private key. And that's what makes it so secure. So like things like that, like you fundamentally kind of understand how the security actually works. And then you're like, okay, that's good. Because like when I'm talking to like a boomer or something and they're like, okay, well, what if my Bitcoin gets hacked? I can explain that to them. And then it's like, oh, okay, I get it now. It's not gonna get hacked. Right. And okay. like, and things like that make a lot more sense. Um, but, you know, quite a bit of detail. Like I said, I'm, I don't remember all the details and um, it, it, it gets very technical. And I, anybody who wants to understand exactly how Bitcoin works, I highly recommend it. Um, but, you, but you get to see how actually a lot of the code works. So you went down the rabbit hole of his book, yep. a few other books. And yeah, I mean, I, I read so much. I, there's a bunch of different essays I read um, and all these things like far corners of the internet I had to go to to like find a lot of information. I did a lot of reading through like old papers of the Federal Reserve to kind of figure out things that it, um, you know, figure out some of the nature of the thinking behind how it worked. And through that process, when I was kind of done, I was like, okay, well, what's my next step? And I was like, okay, well, I should probably just be like writing this stuff out so that I can really understand what I think about this industry. And I started off just like, okay, well, I'm gonna write like a series of essays. And then going on that journey, um, kind of midway through that, I was like, okay, there's so much I wanna write here. I'm just gonna turn this thing into a book. And I guess I can do that. Like anybody can publish a book. So, um, so I started doing that. You know, I think my, so my book's like 14 chapters, but I probably wrote a total of like 18 chapters and then ended up removing a lot of them. What, what got the cut? Um, my, I had a chapter that focused quite a bit on inflation and um, inflation was too much of a, uh, it's too much of like a pie in the sky type debate, I think for me to uh, include that as like a fundamental chapter of understanding Bitcoin. And I was like, you don't necessarily need to understand this. Like that, that was like a really good example. Well, some people question Bitcoiners' use of inflation as a as a reason for for oh. Bitcoin because some people believe that uh, Bitcoiners sometimes uh, misunderstand inflation. They're putting all inflation down to expansion of the money supply. Yep. Uh, I did a interview with Colin Roche recently where we discussed inflation. And he mm -hmm. said, well, no, inflation comes from multiple reasons. 
It's yep. not just an inflation of the money supply. Yep. It can come down from the growth in the economy, yep. you know, productivity. So it's a more complicated picture. Exactly. It's and that's I see this so much on Twitter, and it's like aggravating because like it's it's so hard to debate these topics without like a holistic picture of things. And um, and everybody argues for things in a very myopic way. They'll just be like, okay, they understand one aspect of what's going on, and then they'll like push their narrative for that aspect. And it's like you want to be very holistic with how you're making this argument. The way I like to think about the inflation argument is there's like three primary buckets. There's you can make arguments for or against whether or not prices are going to rise or decline. There's the supply and demand aspects, and that's a massively complicated argument to make because. Because if you're talking about inflation as like a general rise in prices, and then you're talking about the supply and demand aspects of that general rise in prices, and we're talking about a bunch of different markets all over the world at any given point in time. And like, that's incredibly complicated to make arguments for. And you can say like general trends for things. You can be like, okay, well, you know, we're going through a commodity cycle right now. There's a lot of underinvestment. Um, that could be very inflationary. Um, that'll resolve itself. And for like the energy industry, for example, maybe it's going to take five or six years for us to like start capitalizing that industry enough to solve those problems. I don't really know. I'm not an expert. I just like listen to what my friends in the energy industry say. Um, or like, um, you know, if uh, the supply and demand imbalances and people are like, okay, well, that should be resolving itself pretty soon. It's like, I guess I don't really know. There's probably a small group of people who really know the answer to that question pretty well. Um, and then a lot of people parroting what they hear from other people. So the supply and demand bucket, and then there's the measuring stick, which is how we, it's our money. And there's the question of like, how do we measure that? Um, and what's the appropriate way to measure the money supply? And then there's also how we measure the measuring stick in supply and demand, which is the CPI. And, uh, and I can go into like all that about the CPI, um, but it, uh, that's highly debated. And then there's also just people who are defining things differently and not talking to each other. Like a lot of people in Bitcoin, um, and I, I, I hear them because I'm a big person, like definitions are very important. Um, but what's more important is speaking in the proper terms of the people that you're talking to so that you don't talk past each other than being right and then, you know, saying, telling people to go fuck themselves or whatever you do. But like, it's, it's important to like actually get your point across. And yeah. like, um, I think that uh, with, you know, this inflation piece, there's a lot of people in Bitcoin, they're like, okay, well, the Austrians used to define, in, or, or inflation was originally defined by, um, you know, an increase in the money supply. And over time, we've kind of gravitated away from that. And now inflation is defined as a general rise in prices, which is some arbitrary concept created by the powers that be that control these numbers. Um, so I, I agree that it's not necessarily right, but it doesn't really matter because Federal Reserve defines it that way and mainstream financial media defines it that way. And, um, and that's pretty much how it works. So you need to communicate on those terms with people and uh, make arguments for how that's defined and at least make a distinction between what you're saying, yeah. which I don't see happen all the time. Um, so, so yeah, the, I, I just said a bunch of stuff to say like inflation is a really complicated argument, but. <laughs> I think you're right though. Perhaps that's a second book. Right. <laughs> What's it like approaching a book for your first time? Oh, honestly, it was like, I really give a shit about this stuff. So like, it was actually pretty easy. Like, um, it, not easy. I don't, I don't want to sound like arrogant. It wasn't like easy. It was hard. Um, but it was, uh, it was fun. Like, I don't know. I would, it was just, I'd wake up at like five in the morning all the time and just like wake up and just like write all day. And, um, you know, I'd be like in this, I have this cold room in the basement with like my hood up and I just like sit there and just like write about stuff. And it's like, I, I was 
thinking through things for myself. So I went through a ton of iterations on it because it's like you think through something and it's just like, how would that look if the whole world was scrutinizing it? And, um, and then you're like, okay, that's not a complete thought. And then you're like, okay, I got to go back to the drawing board. I don't understand this well enough. And there were periods like that where like I'd write for a bit and think I understood something. And then as I write it and as I try to conclude things, I'd be like, okay, I don't understand this well enough. And then I'd go like research for like a week or something or a few days and then get back to it. And there's a lot of Bitcoin books out there, a lot. Yeah. Very, a lot of very good Bitcoin books. What mm -hmm. did you want people to get out of this one that was different? Yep. So when I, going through that whole process of just, uh, you know, reading everything that I could. And like back then too, once again, like I, there's a lot of Bitcoin books that I haven't read and, you know, I probably should read, but like back then I just wasn't aware that they existed. And, um, you know, I wrote the book that from what I'd been researching was the book I wish I had been given when I first discovered Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I think that what- So you're saying you've written the best book on Bitcoin. That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean- I didn't say that, but I mean, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, I but, think coming, yeah, go but, ahead. But is it more for, so something like, for example, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, mm -hmm. I think is a great book for my normie friends to say when they say, mm -hmm. Pete, tell me about Bitcoin. It's like, just go and read this. That'll give you yep. a basic understanding of the history of money and yep. why Bitcoin is the best form of money. I feel like with your book, it's probably a little bit more higher intellect level. Mm -hmm. So maybe people who've got a, a broader interest in economics yeah. and a deeper understanding of why Bitcoin matters. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's geared for people with a background in finance and economics. But it, I was very surprised at some of the demographics it started to hit with. Um, it was kind of odd, like when it first started to get traction, I started getting a lot of emails from dentists. Um, a lot of dentists like the book. And I was like, that's cool. I'm, I'm happy with that. Did um, your mom read the book? Mom got all the way through the book. Yeah. Yeah, she did. And she, she was talking to me a little bit about um, elliptic cryptography one night. I was like, damn, mom. Damn, like, mom. Damn. <laughs> and did she buy some Bitcoin at the end of it? Oh, yeah. She's, uh, she bought mom. the dip too. She bought the dip. Go she, mom. She, uh, she's kind of a good barometer. Like if I ever get a fund set up, um, I will probably use my mom as my barometer of when's the right time to buy because every time there's a dip and she's kind of like, okay, I think I want to get some more. And I'm like, are you sure? Like could go down more. And she's just like, no, I think now's the time. And she like gets to the bottom nearly every time. So I used to have the mom test with my, uh, when I used to work in digital marketing. Yeah. Um, whenever we had uh, a, a new project we were working on, say as a new web build, uh, UX was central to what we did. Mm -hmm. It was the, the foundation of every project. If the UX doesn't work, yep. the website doesn't work. You, know, you have to have a, a, a solid foundation for the user experience. It would always go to my mom and I'd say, mom, test this. See yep. wherever she got stuck yep. and what she didn't yep. understand. That, that's the best way to do it. And like, Moms are the best. Moms, uh, I love mom, love mom. Shout out to you, mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk to me about central banking. What did you learn about the establishment of the Federal Reserve and how it's changed. Yeah. Like, um, like, did it start with honest intentions? I know some people argue, no, it's always been evil, but. So that's, that's a hard question. Okay. Just because I think that it depends. It depends on the person. Um, there's a lot of people involved, obviously, with starting this organization. And um, I think that there was definitely a core group of people who, uh, I don't think had honest intentions and, you know, they definitely had selfish intentions. Maybe they were honest. Um, but, uh, 
So, you know, the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913, just before World War One. There was a Jekyll Island Club, and that was Senator Nelson Aldrich, the Treasury Secretary at the time, and then like five different uh, Wall Street bankers who a lot of them had ties to England. Um, so, I mean, the initial group of people that were creating the Federal Reserve and then also how they positioned it, they didn't use the words like central or bank in the name as part of their public marketing campaign because the public historically had a very bad taste in their mouth over central banking. There had been three central banks that were created and fell before the Federal Reserve was created. I didn't know that. Yeah. So um, why, why did they fail? Um, well, it's, it's kind of, it's complicated. The, the, so there was the Bank of North America and, um, you know, that was created pretty much to finance the Revolutionary War and that it was closed after that. And then there was the First Bank of America and um, that was closed during, there was this battle between um, Jefferson and Andrew Jackson or um, uh, Alexander Hamilton. That was a very controversial bank and they ultimately had a very high degree of inflation. Um, and I think it only lasted for about 20 years and it was ultimately closed when Congress voted to close it after that period. Um, just inflation was getting very high. And, um, and then there was the second bank of the United States. And that one was probably the most interesting and more modern. Um, and so basically the bank was created and there was this chairman, Nicholas Biddle. Um, and he was, and the, you know, the, this is just like the factual story. And there's a lot of ways that people could read into this, but um, the chairman created it. And when Andrew Jackson was up for his uh, second run at presidency, he was campaigning to close the bank and he wanted to move back to gold. And he was actually campaigning and paying people with gold during that time. And Nicholas Biddle was kind of campaigning in an alternative way and he was like paying off members of Congress by advancing their payments from the Fed because the Fed is like the treasurer of US funds. Um, and he was also paying members of the media to like support a lot of what was going on with the central bank during Andrew Jackson's campaign. And Jackson, uh, one day he decided, he's like, okay, we're gonna pull the treasury's account from the Fed and we're actually gonna hold it ourselves. And that was very bad news for the Fed. That was a very large portion of like, you know, how they were generating revenues and institution. So Nicholas Biddle created this deliberate economic contraction and then was paying off the media to try to get them to uh, play it off as if Andrew Jackson, it's his fault. He pulled his money from the Fed and therefore we have to contract the money supply when he just like, you know, raised interest rates. Um, and then he was ultimately charged with fraud. And, you know, they closed the bank immediately after that, or not immediately, you know, it went through a court process, but, you know, years after that, it was all closed. And um, that bank effectively ended in a fraudulent way of the chairman. And, you know, that was, that paired with this kind of like, um, you know, national banking system that we had after and some of the fractional reserve issues that occurred during that was ultimately what made the public really not trust how central banks work, nor banks in general. So, there, there, and this isn't just either in the U.S. You know, this was this was in England. These things, similar things, were going on in France. And I kind of highlight that a bit in my book. Is like there's this pattern throughout history of these failures where it's effectively like there. It's and this is it, it's not true in every scenario, but it's true in most of them. Um, there's a need to finance war. Central bank gets created. Um, they print too much money. Back when you know people were on a lot of these banks were running on a gold standard, and fiat was largely rejected by private markets back then. Um, 
there would be you know too much money printing beyond the gold reserves war ends um people realize oh the money's been debased because now they're demanding it in gold the gold's not there there's some sort of run on the banks um and then you know inflation ensues price controls get implemented supply shortages occur and then yeah it's and it's, it's like it's, now it's, it's literally eerie yeah because i wrote this book before all this stuff happened or not before all this stuff happened but a lot, the price controls and stuff hadn't popped up yet so i was like calling for that on twitter a bunch wow um, there's been certain calls um yep. elizabeth warren has certainly hinted yep. that that price controls should be uh, implemented or are required and yep so it's really eerily like what is happening right now. Right. And then like the last major thing that happens is after that, it's just like a ton of economic dislocations start occurring. And um, uh, and then there's eventually some form of regime change that occurs. And when and that's kind of, you know, I think we'll probably follow a similar pattern at some point. It, it might be a bit more drawn out just because of how we can like our, our system structurally different than how it used to be. And it's there's a bit more control over it. So I think it can be managed for a bit longer. But um, but regardless, uh, taking taking that all back to like the Fed. Um, so the Fed was created before World War One by a bunch of wealthy people. So that that Jekyll Island Club was estimated, um, and this was in a this was in a major magazine publication back then. I can't remember its source in my book, but um, one sixth of the world's wealth was represented by the group of guys who were on Jekyll Island. So it was really about protecting themselves. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways like, you know, there's like the book, you know, the famous book, like the creature of Jekyll Island. Yeah, yeah. And like he, he reads into a lot of that stuff. And I don't know, maybe he's right about some of it or all of it. Um, but it's just not really a firm uh, way to make certain arguments. And this is one thing that I tried to cling to in my book is I was like, I didn't want to get too tinfoil hat with anything. I just wanted to say, here's factually what happened and you can read into things. Um, but here, here, here's kind of the facts of certain situations and the ultimate outcomes that occurred. And we can kind of see a pattern with a lot of this stuff. Um, and I also wanted to source a lot of my information. I like, I do source information from, you know, I, I source information from Creature Jekyll Island. I source information from a lot of Austrians. Um, but I also made a point to source a lot of my information directly, like from the Fed or from alternative sources. Um, and I think, you know, even even doing that, like the story just kind of tells itself with the Fed. Um, the Fed has had 16 material economic recessions since its inception. It was started as the, um, you know, with the goal of just price stability back then. And it's had a recession on average every seven years. Um, and there's the the symptoms of like our fractional reserve banking system that was ultimately used to justify why we should have a central bank controlling monetary policy because you know people are incapable of doing it themselves um th those symptoms are more just related to the fact that we have moral hazard inherent in our system through bailouts as long as that exists then private markets are going to act based on that information and if we can eliminate that which is what bitcoin's a solution to then we should expect that market actors will be relatively rational on the whole and um, and that, that'll probably take an adjustment period. Like I see if we are on a Bitcoin standard tomorrow and we have a bunch of like, we have like some sort of free banking system emerge. I think that a lot of people are probably gonna be, um, we're probably gonna have a lot of banks that take advantage of things and they fail and they extend too much credit. 
and uh, and their reputations will be at risk and they will fail and not be bailed out. And that's the key thing is it'll probably take some time for people to learn, but I think eventually people will learn and banking institutions would learn that, well, we fail, when we fail, we fail. We can't you know, privatize our profits and socialize our losses anymore. And that'll probably take time. And the Federal Reserve has survived 108 years. Why did the Federal Reserve reserve survive when these other three banks you know, central banks before them failed Ooh, that's a good question i've never uh i haven't gotten asked that um so the the well because of because of us being the federal reserve effectively put us into the most dominant uh international monetary position we could be um and i think that that's something that's kind of underrated a bit when people talk about fed policy today um, it's not that people don't talk about this, but a lot of people are like, oh, the Fed's constrained by inflation. And, um, and that's true. But the, there's also a whole international monetary game going on. And it's incredibly important for the U.S. to continue to main this perpetual deficit, trade deficit that they have. And the Federal Reserve is instrumental in that process. Um, Explain to people why they must maintain that. Yeah, so it's effectively in the simplest terms, um, and this is this is complicated, but in the simplest terms, it's just that when the U.S. is the so 80 percent. Oh, this is interesting because um, recent news was so in 2019, 80 percent of foreign transactions were conducted in the U.S. dollar, um, just like contracts are made in that. Um, and people are conducting trade and th those are general estimates that people get to. Um, and then 60 percent of foreign reserves were, um, are, are in the US dollar. So that's effectively like the power, the, the power that the Federal Reserve or the US dollar has in the global economy is that people need to use it to conduct trade with one another. And um, so if people stopped trading in the dollar tomorrow, if that just went to zero, then there really wouldn't be a need to hold it in reserves anymore. So that those two numbers are like pretty tied well to one another. What would the implication of that be though? What Less demand for the dollar? Yeah, def uh, less demand for the dollar. Um, it would be that people are conducting trade in alternative forms of money, whatever whatever that would be, and um, that would that would mean that when people are so, the the better way to answer that is for me to go back to the beginning. So like when the U.S. is in this position where people need to use dollars, then there's demand for dollars at a global level. And the U.S. can create dollars, aka nothing. They don't create a good, they don't create a service, they don't have labor, none of those things. They just create dollars and they supply them to global markets in certain situations. And then the global markets can pay them back in labor and capital. So they get resources back in some form. So it allows us to trade nothing for something. And, um, and that's a huge position of power to be in. France would refer to it as the US exorbitant privilege. Um, and that is, it, it's something, you know, when people look at like these labor intensive economies like China and India, and it's like, well, how come all of our labor is being exported to those economies? Um, and it's because they can artificially suppress wages to make themselves competitive in a global environment to be able to export that and receive, you know, dollars in return. And that comes at the cost of our domestic labor force for a lot of these blue collar industries and there's not enough jobs and wages are getting too low and it's because they have to compete against artificially suppressed wages um, abroad. And there, so that's referred to as like the Triffin dilemma. 
And that's just like an example of one of the costs that comes from this when you're, uh, when you're the world reserve currency. So the world reserve currency has benefits internationally, but it also has costs domestically. Mm-hmm. And that, that ties me back perfectly to what I was gonna say with the Federal Reserve back in the Great Depression. Um, so we got to this point where, you know, England and from the period of like World War I into, um, uh, you know, the Great Depression era, the gold standards were kind of on and off for certain economies throughout the war. They were turned off and then they, they emerged again. And what happened is, is like after World War I, England was in a very weak monetary position and, um, and the U.S. was attempting to help them. So like a little background, um, when you're on a gold standard and you want to attract gold to your country, then you want to have higher interest rates. The higher your interest rates are, the more people will take money from their lower interest rate economies, they'll borrow it at a lower interest rate, and then they'll invest it in your economy with a higher interest rate. So that, depending on your monetary policy, you had a trade-off. You can have low interest rates at home, and you can have credit expand at home, and you can have a more thriving economy, but that comes at the cost of your international monetary dominance because your gold starts to leave the economy, and um, in your currency isn't as sound at that point, especially when you have a mandated gold standard that you need to abide by and people get worried. So that was kind of the trade-off that was going on between England and the US. And the US was supporting them for a period of time. And um, they ultimately, uh, the US was effectively um, lowering interest rates to support England in some, because the US had a ton of gold and England didn't have much at all. And they were lowering interest rates to support England and have some of that gold flow back into England. And, um, and then it was like the panic of 1921 happened when the U.S. raised interest rates from it was like one and a quarter to 6%-ish. Um, and that effectively just like caused this little like mini recession or kind of large recession. And, and then we went back into this low interest rate environment immediately after that again. And then like the roaring 20s spurred and the stock market was flying. And, um, and then it was around like 19... Um, 1925, England started to get to a weak position again. And, you know, mind you, they were the global monetary standard back then. Um, And they, uh, so the US once again was like lowering interest rates to try to support England. And what was interesting is when we got to this really frothy level in 1929 before the stock market crash, um, and then flowing into like 1931, is some of the monetary policy decisions that the Fed made during that point in time. So back then, so like around like 1931, um, the mandated gold reserve ratio was 35%. And the US had reserves of around 51%, and they were still raising interest rates. And that's, I argue a bit for this in my book, there's a lot of dynamics that affected this, but I don't think this point's really talked about a lot. Um, the fact that we didn't need, we were so far above our mandated gold reserve ratio, we didn't really need much gold, and we spiked interest rates, you know, effectively causing a depression within our economy, and then also taking international monetary dominance from England during that period of time. I think that that's a strong argument that the U.S. wasn't motivated to support their economy domestically. They were trying to gain international international monetary dominance over England during that period of time. What's also interesting is when Executive Order 6102 went into place, that 51% turned into 61%. So after that happened, we confiscated the private gold. We were getting close to double the amount of our mandated ratio. so that was, um, so I think that that motivation is really, really important. And like when you bring that kind of to today of something more topical, um, 
So I was quoting those 2019 numbers for 80% of foreign transactions are in the US dollar. And with, uh, there was a Wall Street Journal article last week and I, tw I tweeted on Twitter and to get as much love as I thought it deserved. Um, but in this article, there was a statistic and there's this report out of this uh, uh, research firm. It was like ING, I think, um, I, I, I can't remember exactly. But it was, you know, in the Wall Street Journal that that 80% number from 2019 is estimated to be 56% now. So that means US dollar transactions on a global scale are estimated to have declined from 80% to 56%. That's a matter of two years. That's a very large decline. And like we have a petrodollar system still in place. It doesn't mean that like the US dominance is going away overnight. There's still a lot of transactions conducted in the US dollar. But that's a huge change. And it's something that I want to do more research into. Yeah, what are, what are the implications of that? Well, it just means that, uh, you know, Russia. So since like in 2009, during the Great uh, Recession, um, China and Russia were calling for a neutral global currency. And like there wasn't really an option back then. There was like the IMF, like SDRs or whatever, but those don't effectively work for anything. And um so there wasn't really an option, but like, you know, China and Russia had been wanting to get on a neutral currency because of this U.S. advantage that they have and because of this game that they have to play. So when we were uh, calling for that, they were calling for that back then. And then China has been effectively, I think, since like, what was it like, probably like 2014, they started to significantly reduce the amount of U.S. dollar reserves and debt that they were holding. Um, and then China, uh, Russia has been effectively doing the same thing. They're just all these economies are trying to wean themselves off the dollar um, so that they can operate. Um, autonomously, or at least to relatively more autonomously than they were before. So like right now, Russia is looking to invade Ukraine. The US is like economic sanctions. What do we do? Well, we can exclude their banks from like the international SWIFT system, um, which is the system that's used for US dollar transactions internationally. Um, so it's a major point of leverage because so many transactions are conducted on the system with dollars to exclude other banks in a particular economy from using it. Um, that hurts their economy quite a bit. That hurts how they can actually trade with other people and get the resources that they need. Um, so with um, there's economies are realizing that the U.S. is taking its uh, monetary position, and it's when you are the global monetary reserve and you expand your money supply 40% since you know February of 2020. That hurts these economies. That hurts how much value they have as well. And, um, and they don't wanna be a part of that. So the US is in a tricky spot now because not only do they have bad inflation, but they're also starting to lose international monetary dominance. And it's apparently, and I gotta do more research into that, but it seems apparently in a much larger way than I was expecting. And, um, and that, you know, that, that, that's just a pretty big deal. So like, I think when people are talking about like, what's the Fed gonna do next? People are like, okay, well, we have this perpetual debt cycle um, and they can't sustainably continue to raise interest rates because, um, you know, because debt is expanded so much, even very small increases in interest rates when you have such a large amount of debt outstanding causes massive fluctuations in credit. So like, you know, just like the amount of uh, convexity that occurs from it is really large. Um, so we're in that position, which means we probably won't be able to raise rates for too long. And a lot of people, and until I saw some of this news, I was of a similar mind that we're probably going to see the Fed do some sort of fake out. And at the end of this year, they're going to be like, OK, we're lowering rates to zero. There's going to be some sort of crisis. Um, but when I think about their international monetary position, and it's like, OK, well, what did they do in the Great Depression to gain international monetary dominance? And it was different back then, but they put us into a Great Depression and we um, 
became an international monetary reserve, I think effectively from a lot of those actions taken back then. And um, so where we are today with a similar constraint facing us again, um, we're not as constrained because the US dollar is, um, is already a reserve. So we have some leeway there and we have a petrodollar system in place and we're not on a gold standard. So it's, um, but it still is a constraint to be considered. And I wonder if that continues to happen more and more and we do see some of these major economies start to de-dollarize themselves. Um, I could see the Fed taking a much more hawkish stance on what they're going to do with interest rates this year. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now we are well into the football season and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet, and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S bet.io forward slash promotions next up is compass mining and compass aren't just a sponsor i'm a customer of theirs and i am mining bitcoin with them do you know i've been mining for over three months with them now i've mined about 0.4 of bitcoin which is pretty cool i'm going to try and do updates on this every month but with the price of where bitcoin is i'm approaching having i think about a third of my mining equipment paid off i love that i'm mining again because compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner, to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And do you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined training view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is Level a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking 
And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is LVL.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Interesting. Um, yeah. Have you read Alex Gladstein's article regarding the petrodollar? Uh, I... Cracked it one morning, and I I, I, didn't, I read the first few paragraphs, and then I, I didn't finish it. So one of the most interesting things that came out of that, and a conversation I had with him, is there's there's still real confusion about why the Iraq War happened. We know now that uh, Congress was lied to. Yeah, we know uh, it wasn't a war that was created on because of WMDs. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alex uh, put forward a hypothesis. Because uh, at the time, Saddam Hussein was looking to move off the petrol dollar. He was looking to move to the petro euro. And mm-hmm. uh, Alex uh, made the suggestion that you know, his hypothesis is perhaps that was a reason for that war to protect the pre- petro dollar. And the hard thing about these conversations is um, there's there's so many there's so many things like we're kept in the dark about to really like fully understand these situations from like a military perspective. But um, with my limited knowledge, like I, I, I agree. I think that that's a major motivation. Yeah, interesting. And so as we're seeing now, aren't we seeing Russia and China are now trading oil, but they're not trading in the dollar. They're, I don't know, are they trading in? Uh, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the alternatives are that they're opting into. Well, I know they're um, looking at CBDC. Yep. Yep, they're definitely looking into those. Um, but I, I, I assume that they're trying to conduct as much of it as they can in their domestic currency. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so are we finished on that? Yeah. Because my next question for you really is a lot of people who are uh, supporters of Bitcoin uh, are supporters of the idea of having no central banks. Yeah. Now, Without Bitcoin, what, what what does the economy look like without a central bank? Just forget that we have Bitcoin. How does a country operate without a central bank? Ooh, um, so yeah, so I got. Um, is that more like the free? Is that essentially a free banking era? A free banking type system, yeah. So like we had like a while. And it's hard because like in it, it's hard when you compare things to history. Number one, history is like one of the hardest things to write about because to write about it holistically. There's so many facts, especially on these types of topics. There's so many facts and details that are relevant that you ultimately, like when I was writing my book, it's like some of my history, I'm writing it as a response because like I was educated um, on the alternative side of these Uh things and most people are. So I'm writing a lot of my history as a response to that um, because it's like, it's impossible unless there's very few like intellectuals out there who want to go read some massive book that's just physically a recount of history and like you, you know, interpret it as you may. And it just, it requires a ton of, ton of writing to really explain like small situations. Um, I think like when you look at like our wildcat banking systems and like how property rights worked back then and how information was just not very transparent back then, I think a lot of the failure of these systems uh, was due to things like that. And, um, and it's, they, they still would work, but uh, I think in our modern economy with very transparent forms of information and reputations online, um, the ability to like, you know, transmit that very rapidly, I think that that makes the argument for a free banking type system much more viable. And um, it's effectively just like, you know, you have private banks that are issuing their own forms of paper that are backed by whatever they would choose to be backed by. 
And, um, and then they have a reputation that would be based around that. So it would be something people would be like, okay, well, I'm using First Bank of, you know, uh, Malibu because they have a really great reputation and they're the standard. And that's what banks are competing for would be some form of reputation. So there'll be multiple currencies. Uh, in a free banking? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you would have the, the the Malibu, Bank of Malibu dollar, Bank of New York dollar. Right, right, right. Yeah. And like, I don't know, they could, they could effectively like standardize and like form federations and things. There's a variety of ways that that could all work out. Um, and yeah. do you think reputation would lead to a discrepancy in the value of those dollars? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, yeah, well, it, it, reputation as well as like, um, it would depend on how transparent they would be. Um, What's tricky is that you can be transparent with like blockchain technology, for example, like you can be transparent about an asset, um, but you can't necessarily be transparent about the liability. So like theoretically, if it's like we're a bank, we have a website and at any given point in time, you could look at our reserves to our loan ratios that we have outstanding um, or whatever it is that's backing our paper. Um, you would have to trust them on the actual paper that they're issuing yeah. unless that was also on a permissionless blockchain as well, which I guess I haven't thought through how exactly that would work. So do you think Bitcoin ultimately leads to the end of central banking or could lead to the end of central bank? <laughs> I, I think it ultimately could lead to the end of a central bank. Um, I, I won't. I want to believe, I, well, okay, here's how I'll say it. I think that Bitcoin will reduce significantly the role and probably the nature of a central bank to, in any event, to be more of an in, like administrative type entity as opposed to a monetary authority, something that would administer the system and allow it to function with oversight from some sort of legal authority. Um, and not making monetary decisions necessarily. Um, but on the whole, I guess, yeah, I think it's gonna end central banks. And the end of central banking and uh, move more to this kind of idea of uh, a free market for banking, mm. what, are, what are the implications therefore on the economy? Does it, uh, does it change the market for cheap credit? Uh, does it change malinvestment? Does it, does it fix all these problems? Um, I, I don't think it fixes it, um, but I think it allows a private market to make those decisions. Or reduce the, ext the extremes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's economies to fluctuate and this, this is one thing. So like, you know, people have come at this from the perspective of like Bitcoin solves everything and it fixes everything and everything's gonna be perfect and it's gonna be a utopia. And it's like, at the end of the day, there's a reason that we valued more stability in a currency as well. And we were able to use that as a selling point. Um, there is going to be volatility. Volatility will be inherent. Even when Bitcoin reaches maturity, it will still be more volatile than a currency that supply is constantly backstopped to have stability. Is that because of it's inelastic? Um, well, yeah, it's inelastic because every time the demand fluctuates, a central bank can change the supply to yeah. respond to that. So yeah, exactly. So we, we say, the which is an easy decision for a centralized entity, um, to say, okay, well, as long as the costs aren't on us, like, then we can have this stable currency. And there are still benefits to having a stable currency. Ideally, we course, want to yeah. have both. So, um, well, so yeah, that's a really interesting point because, uh, again, there are proponents for Bitcoin being the only currency. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm still in the place where I think we need two currencies. We need Bitcoin as more of a reserve asset. Mm -hmm. um, 
and we accept the fluctuations in its yeah. valuation. And then we have uh, a, a more kind of paper, I say right. paper, you know what I mean, like a more like a fiat currency, um, which is a bit more, uh, as a more stable price, yep. which protects trade mm -hmm. because fluctuation, massively fluctuating prices in trade is an issue. Yep. And uh, it's it's a global experiment right now. Yeah. So when Bitcoin is a hundred trillion in market cap, what is its volatility going to be at that point? We just simply don't know. We don't know. And um, but the good news is is we do have alternatives for stability, and it could be used as like purely a reserve, and we can have some sort of you know other alternative form of money, and you know effectively it'd be like we use like. We could have the Lightning Network, that's a, um, and then we have some sort of like smart contracts being built on top of that, that are creating these stable coins that can have various monetary policies that people can pick and choose from. And there probably, if there is a real demand for that stability at that point in time, then there would probably be maybe a handful of those that people are using in different areas for different reasons. Yeah, I wonder how the Fed or central bank in itself actually ends, and what are the implications of it ending? Uh, yeah, yeah, because. There's clearly a period of pain for something like that to happen. There's no, there's no political will. Yep. Unless you are uh, driven by long-term thinking and uh, an ethical position on what is the best way to operate uh, an economy. Mm -hmm. uh, th there would be no political will for the current administration or another administration to come and say, "Yeah, let's uh, let's end central banking." Let's, let's, because they benefit from the fact there is a. Yeah, central bank. Yep. So the process of ending something like the Fed, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. It's beyond my way beyond my pay grade. You you might have ruminated on this. You know, it's funny because like when I go on podcasts, I get asked like a lot of the theoretical questions of the future a lot, which I get it. It's it's um it's fun to like think through these concepts a lot. But like I, I think a lot of my thinking in these areas is it's just like it is so speculative at this point. It's uh -huh. just, it's like, I don't spend a ton of time really thinking about it. I just think like, okay, well, what am I certain of? And what I'm nearly certain of is that Bitcoin's not gonna fail. And um, and I'm kind of moving forward with how an ecosystem's gonna build on top of that. And okay, it's like, talk to me about that then. What, why are you so certain it's not gonna fail? I mean, I'm certain hmm. it's not gonna fail, but yeah. why are you so certain? Um, once I, and this was one of the main reasons too, when I was thinking like, okay, time to go all in. It's just like, we have, uh, you know, the cost of attack on Bitcoin is so high just from like, I mean, even when you're quantifying it. So like, these are, these are some like dated numbers, but like, you know, I think it would be, it's like 40 billion in infrastructure and then uh, a run rate of like 50 million annually or no, sorry, not annually. Um, I think that was like a weekly number. Um, to attempt to uh, conduct a double spend on the Bitcoin network. And, you know, the U.S. defense budget is like, uh, you know, 80 billion or something. So it's like theoretically possible, but actually like implementing that. Yeah, I mean, you've, a, you've got to get the, the, the inf you've got to build out the infrastructure. Right. You've got to be able to get the ASICs. Yep. You've got to be able to start uh, uh, mining and, and without really raising yep. the eyebrows of people right and, well, and do it discreetly what's, yeah. what's this new massive amount of hash rate that's happening in dc right right, now? right. <laughs> under the white house exactly what? so like from a practical perspective you can't do that it's and impossible it's impossible so and, it's like and people would fight back right exactly people could fight back people could respond it would be obvious i mean you know there, there's so many different ways that that would just not really be a possible scenario uh-huh 
And, you know, once you get to that point, it's like, okay, so the network can't really be attacked anymore. And then that means now that it can't be attacked anymore, people are going to go with their next best and, um, incentive. And the, what I like to say is like, I think that the negative game theory behind Bitcoin of like everybody is, that's how a lot of people when they first understand Bitcoin think they're just like, okay, how are all the, what are all the bad things that could happen to stop it? But it's like, that's not even the stuff you should be focusing on. What you should be focusing on is a positive game theory of what is going to be so attractive about Bitcoin that people are not even going to want to think about doing anything negative towards it. And that's at the end of the day, like, you know, I operate like on the assumption that people are selfish, people respond to incentives, and we're going to continue to see that to play out as it always has. And it's going to be the game theory of these fringe economies that want to opt into a neutral global currency um, that's going to continue to expand. And that's just going to keep bringing people in. Like El Salvador. Like El Salvador. And whoever number two is. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Russia's starting to flirt with the idea. I mean, because at the end of the day, China and Russia called for a neutral global currency back in 2009. Bitcoin's a neutral global currency. Yeah, and you don't want to be the uh, the last country to adopt Bitcoin. Exactly. I'm intrigued to see who's number two. We're seeing rumors there's going to be a, another South American country. Yep, yep. Um, Iran's in an interesting position too. Well, they're not on the SWIFT network, right? Right. They're completely removed. Yeah. I mentioned them in my book. Um, I think that they could be a, a, a big, because they, they, I mean, anybody who just doesn't have that much to lose. And yeah. all, all, the, all the major economies that have the most to lose, those are the ones that'll be last. Well, it's also, it's a good point when you talk about positive incentives, because if you really think about it, the number of people who have the negative incentives is actually a very small group right. of people. It's like this little uh, political machine. Right that operates out of uh, Washington, London, Paris, yep. you know, yada, yada. And they're the people who have the most to lose, whether it's because they think at an individual level that you know, this affects my career or whether they're thinking at a more macro level, they think this is dangerous. Right. And uh, most people would say, oh, they're politicians, they're being selfish. But I actually believe there are people who actually think this is dangerous, that fundamentally believe the the idea of a decentralized currency is, is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's definitely people, uh, and I think like, I think there's a lot of people who legitimately have good intentions who believe things like that. And there's, I think that there are very few people who really fundamentally have read as in depth on some of these topics as the Bitcoin people. Like, I think when you have exposure to this stuff on Twitter, there will be like a few figureheads from the other side who've done some sort of understanding. You're like, okay, this guy's making a few good points. He's, he, he says some smart things. And then they'll like say something. It's like, okay, that that's not a very good point. Um, and I think that like you get exposure to like some of these figureheads. But I think that like when I talk to like some of my buddies who are like much more liberal minded, much more like Keynesian economic type thinkers, like they genuinely think the Federal Reserve does its job. And it's a good thing for them to implement stability. And they haven't spent much time reading into a lot of different things. Yeah, and, and you're trying to sell fringe ideas. Exactly, uh, yeah. I sit down with my friends and talk about Bitcoin with them. I certainly don't sit down talking to them about Austrian economics or libertarian principles yeah. uh, because they just won't buy the idea of no government. They won't buy the yeah. idea, you know, these... So it's really difficult. And, and I um, did an interview recently. I had Balaji and Glenn Greenwald on together. And Glenn made the point. I, I can't remember. Do you remember what he said, Danny? It, it was with, um, he said, one of the uh, things that Bitcoiners have not been great at is 
selling the concept of Bitcoin. It comes too much from a libertarian angle, which is something some people haven't even fucking heard of. Yep. And when you start to talk about the ideas or libertarian ideas, they're like, what the fuck is this? This is, this is not a world I've ever yep. considered we could live in. So it becomes fringe. Yep. So it becomes a bit, little bit difficult. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, when I was first kind of getting into this area, when I first got exposed to Bitcoin Twitter, um, <laughs> what? Yeah, I was like, what the fuck what is the going fuck? on yeah. in this place? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I and, and like, you know, I always thought before I got into this world, I thought I was like an extreme fringe view. And like I come into this world and I'm much more moderate. Yeah. And similar. I'd never met people who are anarchists before. Mm -hmm. I will, I won't, you know, deluge on any of that. But like, um, you know, I, I kind of see the intellectual side of what they're going for. I disagree for a number of reasons, but like um, I get what they're saying. Um, but before it's just like, I thought anarchists were just like, you know, people who like punk rock and like want to break shit. Yeah. G8 <laughs> yeah. conferences, smashing up McDonald's and right. black outfits. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was an anarchist to me. And, uh, it's an, I actually think it is an interesting area to get in. I actually do want your position on this because I sometimes, uh, as a more moderate, uh, European Bitcoiner, mm -hmm. I feel quite isolated with my opinions in this area and that I'm not a, like I get called a status cuck. Yeah. Uh, and, and I I am, despite, I had a great conversation yesterday with Vijay Boyaparty and he definitely showed me the picture of how society evolves beyond democracy. But I still felt there's like some flaws in it. But what he was talking about, it's not whether I like it or not, it might become inevitable anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are because I, on paper, fundamentally completely agree with the libertarians. Mm -hmm. I think they're 100% right mm. in the theory, but the theory doesn't account for humans, human behavior. Yep. And I think that's the number one problem is yep. like libertarian ideals are great if you're libertarian minded or, yep. but if you break down some of the structures of society, mm -hmm. other people aren't libertarian. Uh, it's uh, yep. similar minded and I think perhaps the net impact is negative. So you might have, for example, the the ultimate uh, free freedom, which is the idea I talked about with VJ. It's like, and he, he, he actually brought it up, it was interesting. He said, he understands that there are risks of pure freedom. There are yep. you know, risks in the structure of society. I'm more interested in what we've lost from progressives and uh, and the civil rights and the quality side of things that we may lose in a libertarian yep. society. But I'd be interested to know your thoughts. Yeah, so I think, um, so I guess like for the the extreme of like anarchism, it's, uh, you know, this idea that people can operate in like localized groups is fine as long as people choose to do that and people don't choose to do that people choose to organize and form hierarchies and scale those um and they do that because there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained and like that type of vision for the future i think can only exist if the cost of those efficiencies gets lowered so much that it's no longer a consideration then localization makes a lot more sense and i think that that's what technology is bringing us towards yep. over the long run it's definitely a tech enabled idea um, and then bringing that a little bit closer into like libertarianism, um, you know, libertarianism defined as, uh, an individual is entitled, entitled to the fullest extent of freedom, as long as that freedom does not infringe upon the rights of others. 
And, um, and that, and that's saying a lot. Like I remember I would work with some guys who said that they were libertarian and then we'd like talk about stuff. I'm like, dude, you're not like, you, you got to sign on to some shit, like to really be a libertarian. Yeah. And like, um, I think that, um, the, the two primary issues that I think are very gray and very hard to resolve under that doctrine is that, um, natural monopolies and negative externalities. Those are the two like really big things that are hard. So like natural monopolies will continue to form as long as like resources are constrained within particular areas. Um, and until that those resources can be moved easily enough, which is, I don't know, it depends on a lot of different things for different industries. Um, the natural monopolies will always form. So that means either the resources need to be able to move or the people need to be able to move really quickly. And there, it was interesting. One of my friends gave me this book years ago. I never even read the whole thing, but it was on this idea called seasteading. Uh, um, and it's like, you know how like Peter Thiel wants to have like a private libertarian island or something? Yeah. It's kind of like that, but like for the world, it's like a bunch of people have these little like, everybody's house is like a puzzle piece floating all around the world. And like, you can like, you know, drive your house over to one island and everybody like puzzles their houses together or whatever. And they have this like island that everybody can like aggregate together on. And that island is subject to certain laws. And, um, and if you like that island, you can stay there. If you don't like that island, then you can leave and you can go to another island of people. And um, American Huddle's in the house. <laughs> what up, dude? What up, dog? Do you know Eric? No, we haven't met. Yeah, sorry, do you know? Well, here we go. We got Eric Gates, American Hoddle. Hey, I'm gonna be chilling after, dude. I got your favorite here. Look what I got. Look, buddy. I got a bottle of Blantons. You want some? Go on, hook him up. <laughs> there we go. So I'll, I'll compare it to something that VJ talked about yesterday. And correct me if you think I'm, if this is, yeah, uh, yeah. is, a, is a poor analogy. But what he was talking about is beyond democracy, what happens beyond democracy if, if Bitcoin takes us to that place where uh, governments can't function, we essentially move to the, uh, the city state, which yeah. is essentially uh, uh, almost like each uh, city or becomes run more like a company with a, you know, with a leader and is run, you know, and then if you like the rules in Miami, uh, um, but you see there's better rules down in Santa Monica, you can yep. move to that city state. Is, is that a similar concept? It's conceptually similar. The problem is the cost of mobility. Right. And that's that's what it boils down to. And that's what like this whole idea of seasteading is like a solution for apparently. Um, and I, I'm not so saying- you do it on the ocean. You do it on the ocean, you can like float around more easily. It sounds like a rich person. Sounds like a rich person thing, yeah. yeah. It's not gonna be very easy. And then it brings us back to this idea of like Elysium you ever seen that movie with yeah, Matt Damon? Up in the sky. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, I mean, I mean, um, I inevitably see something like that occurring at some point in the future. I mean, if humans have always devolved in ways like that and certain people accumulate more capital, they'll probably continue to organize with one another. And I, 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 I don't know how that all works, but um, it's probably not as simple as like everybody, you know, wealth inequality gets super reduced and everybody lives together and we have a perfectly, um, you know, highly mobile form of society that people move across, you know, they can traverse across whatever borders between one another and we have a competitive market of like government organizations that people are living under. Um, it's, uh, it's probably like people are branching off and doing different things and people are organizing with each other because they have something more in common, which is also, you know, it's good and it's bad. Like, you know, if all the rich people left tomorrow, um, 
and went up into space, then that leaves everybody else in society with the same amount of resources to say, okay, time for us to take leadership roles and see what we can do about this place. And, you know, that could be a good thing. Um, it would also be a hard thing. And as long as the rich people aren't like mining the resources of the earth and then extracting things, um, then, then it would probably work out in the long run. Um, but it's, it, it's not really, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's a hard question to answer. And there's always people that will get left behind in any of these equations at the end of the day. The question is what's the net benefit and who has to make the hard decisions to have that all pan out. Yeah. The net benefit is that's the one I think about a lot. Mm. Um, you know, multiple topics. Uh, I find healthcare is a really interesting topic. We have a socialist healthcare system in the UK. Um, whether you put money in or you don't put money in, uh, if you um, if you're in a car crash, you have a heart attack, you will be seen. Yeah, it doesn't matter what your social status is, what your economic position is. And now, listen, if you want to opt out of that, there is private healthcare, and it's very reasonably priced in the UK. Embarrassing for the US how reasonably priced. Uh, private healthcare is. I mean, I get uh, private healthcare for me, my son, and my daughter for 180 pound a month. When my back went, I was in hospital within three days, being operated on. I mean, for that cost, mm. it was it was fantastic. Um, but I think the top end of our healthcare, uh, I, again, I was explaining this yesterday, is not as good as the top end of U.S. healthcare. Mm -hmm. You know, our uh, our cancer. Uh, uh, services are just not as good as US cancer services. If you have a very serious cancer, you're going to want to have the money or raise the money to come here and be seen. Right. But we have that. It's like, what is the net benefit? Yes, the US has a capitalist system. Well, it doesn't. It has a fucked up healthcare system. But we have a socialist system. If you're anti-socialist, you'll hate the NHS. But the net benefit is everyone in society, whoever they are, can get seen. And it's not going to have a long-term detrimental economic impact on them. Mm. And so I think those net, Discussion is really important because then yeah. when you discuss anarchism, uh, you have to say, well, I might have uh, ultimate freedom. You know, I, I have nobody can rule over me. I have property rights. But what is the net benefit to society? Does it lead to a worse society? Right. What is the impact on like equality? What is the impact on civil rights? What is the impact on human yeah. rights? Do, do we, is the net benefit not there? Right. And, and then it comes down to your timeline of consideration as well. And yeah. that, that's the hardest part is that because we're limited in lifespan, um, people think within those time periods. And because we consider things from, you know, shorter perspectives than the indirect long-term consequences of our decision-making, it might provide short-term benefits for 50, 60 years, but eventually we've created an incentive that erodes at the infrastructure. It's, it's underlying all of that. And, um, and that can ultimately have the system crumble. And I think that that's what we're seeing happening with central banking. Yeah. Um, and in as much as like centralizing services because it provides a net benefit is a good thing in certain situations, it's always hard. And I'm no expert on healthcare of like, what's the, what's the optimal um, limitation of, you know, government power over a very important good or service for an economy. Um, and then how, how constrained should they be in actually having control over that? particularly when it's a critical input to people's lives. Um, that is the trade-off between that and, okay, well, we can provide, you know, something that's socialized that can benefit people and people can be more comfortable if something bad happens that they're going to be okay, which is a big benefit. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to quantify a lot of uncertainty and some people are incentivized to want to control things. And, um, 
and it can lead to negative long-term outcomes. But I, I, I don't know enough to be like, okay, administrative costs are you know this level, they should be this level, and the government should have this level of control. That's optimal for the next century. Like, it's a very it's a very complicated question. Yeah, interesting to talk about though. And one of the yeah. things uh, I've harped on about is I I wish from libertarians more. And I know it's antithetical to being a libertarian for many of them, but it was engaged in more of the politics because uh, what we have is this traditional left and right. Like in the UK, we, we, yeah, we have more of a three, three slash four party system. Yeah, not like the US, a two party system. But either way, there's always a pull from the left and the right. And if you have too far to the right, we end up flipping back. We just have this yeah. back and forth, and yeah, we have this uh, escape valve called the Lib Dems. If you if you you can't support either party, that's that, that's what you go for. But yeah. but when you've got this pull from the left and the right, it doesn't stop government getting bigger and yep. bigger and bigger. And I just feel like if you had uh, libertarians more engaged in politics, you would have that push and pull that mm-hmm. would hopefully make government smaller. Yep. And and I think that would be a more ideal situation. Yep. And I I think that push is probably going to come through uh, a technology enabled movement. Kind like of like a Bitcoin, like a Bitcoin. Yeah, funny that. Yeah, um, but I think that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, like I, I would typically. Um, I didn't vote like the last election cycle, but the last one I voted, it was for uh, in the U.S. It was um, Gary Johnson, and um, you know he was the fringe libertarian candidate saying a bunch of crazy shit, and it wasn't even that I totally agreed with everything he said. It's just like. I would always say, like, if enough of us start voting libertarian, like, eventually we'll have the critical mass to where we won't be insignificant, but you just got to start somewhere, hope for it. So let's go back to the book. Yeah. Finish out. Okay. Seventh property. Yep. Immutability. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you feel the need to focus on that as a, a name? Because it's quite like a, it's like a stake in the ground. Yeah. Um, it just kind of, like, came up. Um, I was, like, writing and... Uh, so when I was initially thinking about like the monetary properties, like I was initially defining that and I was saying like, um, so for anybody listening, it's like in my book, I kind of quantify the, the way to assess money or not quantify, qualify. The way to assess money is there's like six defined monetary properties. You can provide somewhat quantitative, somewhat qualitative assessments for all these properties. And you can say that the good that is optimized across all these properties is the one that will ultimately emerge as the best form of money in an economy, assuming no constraints like violence from governments and things like that. Um, but throughout time, um, I kind of identify this out history. We had this trade of trust for efficiency that existed between money and, uh, and banks. And over time, we said, okay, well, these forms of money are more efficient, and we're going to evolve into not just precious metals, but into coins. We're going to trust the government to mint them for us. Then we're going to evolve into dollars, and we're going to trust banks to hold all this stuff for us and governments to print that for us. Um, And then now we're at a point where we trust them to not even have reserves. Um, And we had this trade of trust for efficiency. And that ultimately is starting to create this very strong level of economic decay. And... um, and it's obvious at this point that that is a trade-off that we probably have taken too far. And if we thought about money from not just the perspective of six properties, but if we had a seventh property in there of immutability, then if the money is immutable and nobody's in control of it and it can't be changed, then that framework would probably have made us, uh, we would have been slower to make a lot of these trade-offs that we made throughout history. So I kind of make that argument like from a fundamental level, if we think of money today now, now that we've got a technology that actually is not only immutable, 
but it's better in terms of every other category for money. It's a true innovation in the, in, you know, the, the um, strongest sense of the word. Um, we can prioritize that as something that we should value as part of money now. And we can say, okay, we don't even need this trade-off anymore. We've literally just innovated that away. Um, and with immutability, like when I was first thinking about what to call that property, I was calling it, I was defining it as like the decentralization of production, storage, and verification of money. Um, those are kind of like the three primary functions of how intermediaries can get involved. And, um, and I spent me, uh, it took me a while to really like think through it. And, um, and it was actually funny when I, I was like, uh, I was thinking through what I should call it. At first I was just saying like, I'll call it like decentralization or something. And then, um, and then I was on, it was like, I was on like Twitter one day and I saw some sort of comment of Eric Voorhees that like alluded that concept to being immutability. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I kind of looked up immutability and immutability. I define it. My, there's different ways you can define it. Like people with a de developer background, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Like that means it doesn't change at all. And like from that perspective and like when you're defining in that world, that's what it means. But immutability is also defined as like very highly resistant to change as well. And that's kind of how I'm defining in the book is something that's very highly resistant to change. Um, so if it maintains that property, then I think it would be fundamental money. And I think if you look at history, um, history is a testament to how things can go really poorly if you don't have money with, that includes that property. We have the innovation now to where we don't have to give up any sort of efficiencies in order to have that. Uh, well, almost, we still need to build out a thriving ecosystem on top of Bitcoin. Um, Do you think that's lacking? Yeah, yeah, I mean, when I talk to, like, I mean, it's just, if I, you know, coming out of the traditional finance world, if I go to somebody and I say, yeah, you should get involved in Bitcoin, they're like, okay, well, where do I get it? Can't get it from anywhere. Um, how do I pay people in it? You know, what do I do? And the amount of handholding and education that it requires to get people there, it's gonna take quite a bit of time. But not only that, I mean, we need all of the, you know, current financial products and services of our current system to be replicated in this new system. And we're very behind on that, you know, we need full-scale insurance solutions. We need full-scale lending products, which is kind of like the first to emerge. Um, you we know, have lending products. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was like the first to emerge yeah. was lending, but like um, there's like, if you get into like sophisticated forms of like institutional grade lending of like structured finance and things like that, like that's kind of just like an emergent thing that's happening in the industry right now. I think it's like, we might have it, but at the level and the quality that people expect of our current traditional system in a lot of different forms, I don't think that we're there yet. But is it like a chicken and egg problem? A bit, yeah. I mean, I, oh, I'm not saying that there's any sort of blame no. to be had here. I, what I'm saying is it's a new industry and it's growing and there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think that people could spend time, um, you know, actually building things that, I mean, Look, a lot of these debates about altcoins and the, like the stupid utilities that they provide that apparently some people want um, that they don't want, um, those debates wouldn't even be occurring if Bitcoin had utility. It's like- um, More utility. More utility, yeah, yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry. If it had that, you know, those levels of utility that, um, you know, we're referring to with that. It's like, uh, and I don't think that you like, uh, I don't think that that's the right way to, you know, go about doing it. It's like, if you're gonna go, um, like if you're gonna go hit on a girl at a bar, you don't talk shit about other guys to her to get her to want you. You go and you display value to a girl. Is that where I'm going wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no, man, you got the ink. You're kind of a type. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. An old type. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, I mean, my defense of this is the 
move slow, don't break things. Exactly. You know, and yep. we're all patient for yep. this to happen. Uh, the, I, I mean, I'm, I would agree with you in the shitcoin world, whether it's Solana or Ethernet or any of that bullshit, they've built things quicker. But at yep. what cost? How, how much money has been lost in rug pulls, hacks, smart, yep. smart contract failures? Uh, and essentially, they're A-B testing shit for us. Which is great. Exactly. I make that point all the time. This is an it's an outsourced R and D sector for the Bitcoin world, and uh, they they get to experiment and fail, and then Bitcoin can replicate things that are ultimately desirable out of that ecosystem over the long run. I I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and, and to be clear, I think that Bitcoin's uh, the the tortoise that wins the race approach is exactly the right approach. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm just making I'm trying to make a point for the other side and say yeah. like. If you, maybe we spend less time raging about shit on Twitter and maybe we spend more time actually building things so that you don't have to rage about shit on Twitter. I, I agree with that point. Yeah. Uh, ha, have you been sucked into all-day arguments with a picture of a dog that has 22 followers? <laughs> I, I, have, um, I haven't gotten in any dog arguments yet, I don't think. I, well, I kind of avoid arguments for the most part. Good move. If I have like a good quip, maybe I'll quip. But other than that, I don't really. Is do there that. any particular stuff that people give you shit for or challenge you on? Not yet. But I don't have any followers. How so many like, followers do you got? Like, um, like five thousand. Yeah, we need to work on that. Yeah, I gotta, we'll I gotta get those numbers up, man. We'll get those numbers up. Yeah. Dude, I fucking love this. Fuck really, yeah, dude. really, really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thanks you for having like, me. Is anything we didn't cover? Um. Oh, you know, one thing I was talking to Ben about, uh, I, I had this thread yeah. uh, that kind of popped off on Twitter and it was about how like the whole like Bitcoin is backed by digital energy argument. The sailor thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I kind of took the other side on that. Okay. Uh, no shade on sailor, that dude's a badass. But um, I think that like, okay, this kind of goes back to some of the points I was making from earlier, but I think like a lot of people come at, arguments within this industry from their perspective. They're a bit myopic and like, yep. that's cool. But um, there's, so like sailors and engineer and engineers hear this idea like Bitcoin is digital energy and like that makes perfect sense to me. And then I'm assuming people, because it's such a big narrative, people are outside of that. It also works for them too. So I'm not saying it's a faulty argument necessarily or that it's not a, or not faulty, but like a beneficial argument. Um, because people people are rallying around that concept and it makes sense to some people. But um, but my thread, I was kind of discussing like, okay, so if the purpose of definitions is to provide distinctions and meaning, and if we, then we want to do that as precisely in, in the best way that we can, that will ultimately, um, you know, show in a succinct way what Bitcoin is, the value proposition of Bitcoin. And when we say something like, you know, Bitcoin is backed by energy, it's like, okay, well, everything is backed by energy. Like that, it's just a broad category. It's not distinctly defined. Um, that's not a, like, if you said that to me, I'd be like, you're in a cult. Like, <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me at all. That's just, um, well, so, so I think we discussed this, Danny. I think we were saying if like Bitcoin is digital energy, then the US dollar is paper energy. Totally. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, you know, like any, you know, um, Anything is back. You can make that argument for basically anything. And that, that, that's the point I make in the thread is I'm like, okay, well, so if we, number one, if you're going to make that argument, then be complete. So if you're going to say, so hold on, I'll, I'll start back here. So we're talking about money. 
So if we're talking about money, then the term backing has a very distinct meaning. Mm-hmm. Backing means redeemability. Yeah. And if you you know read economic history, that's how it's implied. And like somebody on Twitter one time was like, well, who are the um, you know, who are the powers that be that like, you know, defined it as such. And I'm like, well, it's not like, it's like asking who are the people that determine a house is a house. Like it's just something that emerged and people decided that that's what it is. Um, and if you read a lot of economic literature, that's, that's very obvious. But, um, so I think that like, if we're defining money, then we want to say, when we say backed, we need to be clear. Cause if you talk to people who are like, you know, have a background in monetary economics, people in finance, and you say it's backed by energy, it's like, like that doesn't make any sense. I can't redeem it for energy. Um, and so like that, this is kind of a value add for me coming out of the finance world is I can say like, okay, well, you know, that, um, it makes a lot more sense to people, which is going to be, I think a huge wave of people coming in the cycle or like big capital allocators when you say like, okay, well, sound money isn't backed by anything. Sound money has inherent monetary properties. Now those monetary properties are enabled by all these things. And it's not just energy, it's property rights it's contracts, it's supply chains, it's resources, it's governments, it's you know people working, like there's all these different things and ultimately amounts to, you're basically making the argument that some form of labor or some form of capital is enabling it to have sound monetary properties and that's what makes it good money. So I think you're kind of, uh, you're diluting that framework a bit and you're kind of not creating the proper distinctions and meaning with that narrative. Now you might be able to sell every engineer out there with that narrative. I'm not saying it needs to get necessarily shut down, but like if this is getting pitched in a serious way is something to like major capital allocators, then I think this, you know, making the argument that like sound money is, has monetary properties. It's fiat thinking to think that like our money needs to be backed by something. It was only when we had paper money emerge and paper money was good across all the monetary properties and much more efficient than like gold, except for it wasn't scarce. So it needed to be backed by gold because gold was scarce. And as long as it was backed by gold, then we could have the benefits of gold scarcity and all the other good monetary properties a paper has. You know, when we had the inventions of like double entry accounting and the printing press and, um, um, you know, like the telegraph, that's when like paper was the perfect form of money. It was moving trade all across Europe very rapidly. And um, so if we, that idea of money being backed emerged with paper money and Bitcoin is something that no longer needs that. And when we have secondary forms of money that are existing on top of Bitcoin, like a free banking system, or you know some sort of layer two solutions that have their own distinct type of you know money whatever it is that ultimately settles in Bitcoin. Then we can use that idea that it's backed by Bitcoin. Um, but I, I think that that part of the narrative probably deserves to be sorted out at some point right now, and um, and that that would be good when you're talking to people in finance at least. Well, me and Danny discussed it, and we struggled with that concept yeah. of it being backed by energy. But at the same time, I do like the concept and the narrative of uh, the Bitcoin network making uh, energy systems more efficient. Yep. So just a slight deviation from that to explain, and, and Safety explained it to Jordan Peterson recently, and it was, it was really good, really interesting mm. that you can be in one part of the world, have an energy system that isn't being fully utilized. You can, you can mine with that excess energy, create Bitcoin, you can move that Bitcoin around the world, and maybe in the other part of the world, you can buy more energy but you have the ability to make the energy infrastructure or the grids more efficient. I think it's a great story for Bitcoin. Totally. It's totally relevant for Texas. I think the grid there is ECOT. It's called ECOT or something. Um, 
there's a narrative there that the that Bitcoin Bitcoin mining is becoming really important for that system because it its uh, its fragility was exposed. Was it a year ago? Um, yep. I think that's a great ar- argument, a great yep. discussion to have. But just saying back by energy, I, I'm with you. I, I struggled with that. Exactly. And it, I, I completely agree. The way that Bitcoin is going to revolutionize the energy industry and enable these technologies is absolutely massive. And I don't want to take away from that narrative. I just want to make the argument that is a very separate narrative from Bitcoin's function purely is just money and whether or yeah. not it's better money than other forms of money. These are these are separate. It's like um, Bitcoin isn't just a good store of value. It's also a permissionless payment technology. It's a new form of property rights. There's other dimensions outside of money that we can think about Bitcoin from. But when we're talking about it in the dimension of money, I think that we need to be like concise with that narrative. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, listen, you crushed this. I fucking loved it. Hell yeah, I'm telling man. you now. Had a good time. This great. Uh, anyone listening, go and fucking buy Eric's book, Bitcoin, The Seventh Property. Go get it now. Go follow Eric on Twitter. We'll have it all in the show notes. Uh, just tell people where to get the book, where to find you as well. Yeah, it's on... Um, you can get the book on Amazon. And um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Eric, E-R-I-C-Y-A-K-E-S. That's my handle. All right, man. Well, listen, cool. thanks for coming on, dude. And stay in touch. Uh, if you've got a big thread and it's not getting the traction you want, just drop me a DM. I'll take Pete. I'll, pick you, I'll ping you out. And uh, we should do this again. Absolutely. I'm in. All right, man. Take care. Later. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.